Well, good morning, Reality. My name is Heath Meikle. I am part of the pastoral team at Christ City Church in East Vancouver and increasingly more and more time on the downtown east side. I can honestly and most assuredly tell you that I did not contribute to the 2020 COVID baby boom, but my daughter did, and I am a newly minted grandfather as about a month ago, so it's pretty cool. Um, So yeah, I'll show you all pictures later if you want. I'm thinking to myself, am I that old? No, yeah, and I look in the mirror, yep, I'm that old. So uh, on a more serious note, you as a church have been in a series on prayer. So I thought this morning I would invite you into a little bit of my journey. I would like us to uh, look at the topic of evangelistic prayer and maybe look at some of the reasons why we have troubles being effective in doing that. So before I get off the rails, let's open in prayer. God, we thank you and we honor you and we glorify you and we worship you. Lord, we confess that we don't pray to you as often as we do and certainly not for others. So Lord, I ask that as we look this morning at your text, as your words to us, I pray that you give us eyes to see and ears to hear and that we would be responsive to your message. In this I pray, amen. Now when I was 18 years old, I spent a summer traveling as part of a Bible school you know, drama crew. Uh, It was the dark ages before YouTube, early 90s, and that's what you did for fun in the summer. So we found ourselves in pretty much every backwater town and village and, you know, watershed beside the river. Every kind of church service gathering you could have, we were there all over northern Alberta and B.C. Our presentation consisted of a lame stand-up comedy routine, interactive theater and theater sports, and under the guise of entertainment, we would teach kids how to do uh, improv and pantomime. Yeah, not that good. So one Saturday night, we find ourselves in this little town called La Crete, Alberta. And if you're not familiar with La Crete, it's a wonderful place in about as far north of Alberta as you can get. So we did our gig, and afterwards... This random old guy, grizzled and gray, and then as I'm writing this, I realize, oh, he was probably the same age as that I am now. <laughs> so he comes up to me, and he awkwardly, you know, you know how those guys are, they're really awkward, and they're, they know they need, you, you, you can see them, they need to say something to you, and so he comes up to me, he grabs me on the shoulder, and he says, God asked me to give you this book, and you need to pray in order to survive future ministry. Now... Weird. I'm like, I did not grow up in a a charismatic background. You know, we were like, you stand up, you sit down, you read. You know, I did like nothing like this had ever happened to me. And ironically, as you get to know me, you realize that now this stuff happens to me all the time. But back then, this was the very first time that someone had ever whispered an utterance, a a prophetic word over me, and it freaked me out. I was shell-shocked. So I tossed the book into my bag and completely ignored the man's words, and life carried on as normal. It wasn't probably till about a decade later when myself and my family, we were packing up our bags and we were heading to Greece as missionaries that I actually came across this book in a pile of junk. And I had a kind of a gut feeling like, oh, maybe there's something to that old crazy guy's words. Maybe I should read this book. I don't know, might have something for me. Because back then, I didn't think I'd be in remotely anything full-time ministry. I don't remember much of what the book said. But I will never forget 
little blurb that's at the beginning of chapter 3. It says this. God wants me to pray. To be much in prayer because all success in spiritual work is dependent on prayer. A preacher who prays little may see some results of his labors. But if he does, it will be because someone somewhere is praying for him. The fruit is the prayers, not the preacher's. Every convert is the result of the Holy Spirit's pleading in answer to the prayers of some believer. That rocked my world. You see, there are two profound truths here that are in this little blurb. Prayer, number one, prayer is the hinge on which everything works. Prayer is the hinge on everything that works in the spiritual realm. And the second thing that's very profound is that when we pray, we are active participants in gospel proclamation for those that we pray for. Now, anecdotally, as a missionary in Greece, in a, oh, for a better part of a decade, I can attest to this reality. My wife and I served in an anarchist community, like ultra-left-wing Marxist anarchists, and there are people who came to faith because a group of little old ladies in nowhere Alberta prayed for not only me, but for them as well. If you remember nothing else, remember that our prayers for others have ripple effects into the lives of those around us. If you're not a Christian here this morning, you probably are wondering, okay, this is all weird. But if you are a Christian here this morning, we'd all agree with this, right? But the problem is this, is that even though we know these things, even though... We get it, and we conceptually understand it. If all success is based upon our prayer lives, then why don't we actually pray more? Welcome to my world. Why is it so hard to pray? Why? I See, I would engage in refugee work. I did evangelism. I did church planting. And I did the business of doing ministry, doing life in ministry. And, and the fact is, the more I struggled, the more I was, okay, to compensate that, no, don't pray, Heath. Do more, do more, do more. See, if I, if I resolutely believe that, the, that prayer is the hinge on which everything works, then why do I spend less time doing it? It's almost as if, though, something is out of focus, like my reading glasses, you know. If I took this off, I probably wouldn't be able to preach, and that might be a benefit to us, but who knows. You see, the man who gave me this book, who prompted me by the Spirit to pray, I'm sure he knew this reality. And that's why I remember it 20 years later. He's, you need to pray in order to survive ministry. So how do we do that? What motivates us to do that? And that brings us to our text this morning. Now, have you ever had a text get under your skin? Yeah, I'm sure we all have. You know, you read it, and you read it again, and you read it again, and you just can't shake that feeling that there is something there for you. Something important. Something that's just under the surface that you know is there, but you can't grasp it. It's like God has turned up the volume on this text, and you're like, okay, Lord, show me. Show me. Matthew chapter 9, verses 35 through 38 is one of those texts from me. It's the itch that can't be scratched. It's in these verses, in grappling and trying to understand these verses, that I've had a renaissance, if you would say, in my prayer life. It's radically altered my rhythms of prayer, and it's radically altered people around me because of that. It's not about me, it's about my prayer life. So let me read to you Matthew chapter 9, verses 35 through 38. It's written, it's in, I'll read out of the English Standard Version, so... 
I'm not sure if you can follow along, but we'll try. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into this harvest. Now, I've studied, I've read commentaries. I've, I, believe it or not, I'm, I'm, I actually know a little bit of Greek, and I've, I've looked at this, and I'm like, everyone, every commentator, all my study, everybody would say more or less the same thing. But depending on your theological background, your personal preference, your personality, you know, we would, say, you know, we would hone in on a certain aspect of the text that would seem appropriate to what you would like. Some of us like the aspect of, of preaching and proclaiming the gospel, you know? I like that. Others hone in on this kind of justice and mercy component at the beginning. Yeah, I know you guys are very active in that community. Others of of you, you're future-oriented and you gravitate towards Jesus' call to prayer. And others focus on the sending aspect and cite this as a great missionary text, which it is. All of these are correct takeaways. All of these are good, um, appropriate things to come away from this text with. But central to this text, central to understanding, central to prayer life is this in verse 36. And Jesus says, he says, when he saw the crowd, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus says his impetus for ministry, his motivator to teach, to heal, to proclaim, to even send, was fueled by what? Compassion. Compassion he had for people who he saw who were harassed, who were helpless, people stuck in the issues of life, trapped in the hamster wheel of pain and trauma, lacking the love, the care, and the support and protection from somebody else, a shepherd. This is what I missed in my prayer life. Many times, to my shame, I didn't see people as I was serving them. And I certainly did not feel compassion for them. So by default, what do you do? You just do the job. You just live your life without compassion. You see, the default setting in our lives is if if we don't have compassion, we just do the job. Now... One of my favorite Greek words in all of the Greek language is in this text, and it's the word for compassion. I apologize if, you know, nobody's translating right now, but if somebody was translating, <laughs> this is a difficult word to translate. It's called splachnizome, and I could probably get us to try and chant that seven times fast. Splachnizome. See, our English word for compassion does not, unfortunately, have the same thrust as the Greek does here. So when we think of compassion, what do we think of? We think of this nebulous internal feeling. We think of of sympathy, and it's most associated with empathy. Feelings that could be divorced or separated from action. A feeling that you have when people are in distress, you see that, but gives you the option to walk away. I'm confronted by this daily working on the downtown east side. This word for compassion in this text is very different. It literally means... Move to the very bowels. Ah, That's weird, isn't it? We generally don't think of emotions in this way. You see, in antiquity, the bowels were the seat of where everything intense, all the emotions were felt from, from love and joy to hate and anger. And we still have some idea of this use in our English language today. 
How many of us have had a gut feeling? Yeah, one or two of us. When expressing love, where do we feel it? Like the couple that was up here with the kids leaving, where did you feel that pain of them leaving? In your heart. See, when I first became a grandpa, when I held my granddaughter for the first time, my big toe didn't melt. My heart did. See, in antiquities, the bowels were where you had the most intense feelings. And it's always, always coupled by action. This is hard to explain, but bear with me here. A few years ago, uh, when I was still in Greece, there was statistically about 1,000 refugees that would come into Greece daily. Um, they would hire people smugglers. Yeah, that's a whole story. We hire people smugglers, they get into boats, they cross over, get to a Greek island, and, and finally make their way to Athens, where they would get caught in this bureaucratic machine, and then they'd get stuck there, and they'd languish. Then in 2015, about a month after I left Greece, there was a picture that went viral. A refugee child, someone's son, washed up on, on a beach, dead. A toddler Barely three. The Western world, particularly Christians in the Western world, were collectively rendered to the core, to the bowels. And what did they do? It led to an unprecedented flow of manpower, cash flow, finances, all to alleviate the suffering of Syrian and Afghan Afghan refugees. Countries that were formerly closed opened their borders. They would host, they would take people. And what went from 100 people arriving every single day in Athens to 1,000 ministries Refugee camps sprung up everywhere just to alleviate the suffering and the pain of those coming. Now, a friend of mine at that time and still does runs a refugee center in central Athens. And he said the situation was really weird at the time because it was like expressing two tsunamis, two waves crashing together at the same time. Not only was there an influx of refugees coming, but there was also an influx of Westerners and cash flow to help alleviate the suffering. The refugee problem still exists It existed before, it existed after the picture. The difference is, is that we saw a little boy, and it put us into the story. We saw our children in that picture. We saw our child on the beach, and we felt compassion, and we were motivated to action. This is the type of compassion that this text portrays. The world saw a dead child, someone's son on a beach, And was moved to action. That is compassion. But underneath this. God sees this very same world. Selfish. Broken. Depressed. Hurting. Mired in sin. Mired in death. And he sends his own son to die. Not on a beach. But on a cross. This son. Jesus dies in our place. So that we can have a life. That we don't deserve. This very son, this Jesus, the son of God, he sees the crowd, he has compassion on them, and this same love of the Father that sends him, he acts. Jesus acts. He proclaims the restorative work of his kingdom. He teaches them. He feeds them. He heals them. He frees them from every affliction. But more than that, he connects his followers to this same compassion. And in a very real way, connecting his followers to the love of God. Who sent him. 
In fact, right after this text in Matthew chapter 9, in chapter 10, we see Jesus calling his disciples together. We see him commissioning them as apostles, which literally means sent ones. And he gives them authority over sickness, over spiritual powers, and he sends them out. He sends them to proclaim this same message into a broken world. This same compassion that sends also will lead Jesus to Easter, to the cross where he dies and he rises again so we might live. This is the force of the word compassion in this text. It's birthed in love of God and it's explosively expressed outward. So why do I tell you all of this? It's a fun little interaction, but why do I tell you this? Because we too are invited into this same restorative work of God, aren't we? We too, centuries later, we read this and we are confronted by Jesus' call here to pray. What we miss, what has been absent in my prayer life for far too long, was a prayer that was birthed in compassion, gospel compassion for those around me. For a people harassed, helpless, sheep without a shepherd. Sounds like an obvious no-brainer, right? But it really it just proves my narcissistic shallowness of my heart when I don't pray. I know I'm not alone here. I know that as a church, we lack power and stability in prayer. Why? Because this type of compassion, this call to prayer, goes against the grain of our modern self and our culture of rapid individualism. See, if I want to maintain my own personal integrity, if I want the autonomy of me on myself to be protected, if I want my identity to stay intact that I've created, if I want to be in control of my own spiritual life and well-being then all I have to do is divorce compassion from my prayer life. It's one thing to pray to the Lord of the harvest, to send laborers, thinking of yourself, to yourself, rather, that, hmm, send them, not me. Send them, not me. And in the end, you actually get what you pray for, status quo. It's quite another thing to pray. To pray asking God to help you see people like Jesus sees people. Pleading to the Lord of the harvest to help you have compassion like Jesus had compassion. Sacrificial. Birthed in love. And focused solely outside of yourself. It's a wholly different thing to pray to the Lord of the harvest with the understanding that you might be the answer to your prayer. Praying with this compassion puts prayer and it, live, it puts it back into focus. I actually have reading glasses. I can actually see things for what they are. It transitions our gaze from ourselves to the other. In doing so, we realize that we are the ones that are harassed and helpless sheep without a shepherd. Reality, this text has changed my prayer life completely. And I feel stupid that it's taken 20 years to realize this. Learn from my mistake. Learn from my stupidity. Because this text will also change your life as well. So right now, not only do I know that prayer is the hinge on which everything works, but I also know that when I pray, I'm an active participant in gospel proclamation and life-changing to those we pray for. But I'm also now motivated to pray because I'm connected to the true source and the power of prayer. And it's the compassion and the love that we have for another sourced in the gospel of Jesus Christ. See, the real issue, the root issue, is that I really didn't believe that my, you know, the gospel had jurisdiction over my prayer life. That's a hard thing to say. So some time ago, I reoriented my prayer life around this principle. 
And I began to pray, okay, Lord, send laborers into the harvest field. This is what you commanded us to pray. Send laborers. But I also started praying, Lord, change me. Change my heart. Help me to see people as you see people. And even more dangerously, I started to pray, help me have compassion as you have had compassion, even though it may cost me my life. I started praying this. And gospel interactions, I kid you not, became coming out of the woodwork. It's almost irritating. I have conversations, gospel conversations, every day, almost. It's because I pray. It's not anything I do. And I don't have time to interact, you know, to give you all the crazy and weird stories. You can ask me about them afterwards if you want. But I want to share you, share with you one story. See, I've been praying this for quite some time, probably three, four years now. And so it was before COVID, and I started praying, Lord, help me to see people as you see people. Help me to have compassion as you have compassion. Help me to be an agent of healing. Help me to pray for the workers. Help me to walk alongside broken, hurting people dealing with just trauma in their lives. And then COVID hits. And I find myself cooking on the downtown east side. I, I love to cook. And I find myself at this organization cooking and doing uh, Bible studies at Jacob's Well. So one evening I show up to cook, and there's this new person there. So we start cooking together, and a very, you know, unmennonite thing happens. I feel like a, a two by four to the back of my head. Heath, you've been praying for my compassion. You want to see people as I see people? Then walk with this guy. I'm like, okay. So as I cooked, as I listened to this person's story of, of longing, of adoption gone wrong. By the way, I have this rubric that I actually can get. I have a thing that I practice to try and get people to tell me their life story in 10 minutes. So there's a little bit of that. But as I listened to his story... His loneliness, his pain, his addiction, his suffering, his uh, gender dysphoria, his transition, his suicide attempts. At the same time as I listen to him articulate a glimmer of hope in his, in his life and the blackness of, of death, my dead heart, my hard heart was ripped into a thousand pieces. I was overcome, quite literally. I have never felt compassion like that before in my life. And I've walked with this person in the last year, day by day, week by week. And we've walked through what it seems like a thousand hells. Somewhere in the last six months, somebody gave him a copy of St. Augustine's Confessions. And sometime after that, on a drive... I've got a Mitsubishi Delica van, and its nickname is The Chapel. And so we're we're in the van, and we're driving towards Whistler. And he looks at me, and he says, Heath, do you think God can forgive me? If he forgives St. Augustine, can he forgive me as well? Oh, reality, prayer is the hinge on which everything works. You see, I had a whole group of people praying for him for six months. 
See, my friend has coming to terms with what, what life looks like with an identity built around Jesus rather than, you know, trauma, reactions to trauma and social conformity. He went in one year. In fact, this past week, it was the one-year anniversary where I met this guy. In one year, he went from living in a shed smoking meth to now having stable housing, a job, coming to church with me. You see, this powerful, transformative work, it's not done. I was been texted with him this morning, had a really rough night. But this is solely accomplished by the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ in the answers to prayers from faithful people like you and I. This isn't some sort of Marvel cinematic universe. This is just regular people like you and me praying for others. See, this, it's this thing that has been reminding me of that stupid book that guy gave me 30 years ago. God wants me to pray. To be much in prayer because all success in spiritual work is dependent on prayer. A preacher who prays little may see some results of his labors. But if he does, it will be because someone somewhere is praying for him. The fruit is the prayers, not the preachers. Every convert is the result of the Holy Spirit's pleading and answer to the prayers of some believer. See, it's in the prayers of, of compassion that we actually see outside of ourselves. We can think outside of ourselves, the immediacy of our situation, the here and now. It moves us from being spectators on the stands to actually engaging in spiritual work of ministry. It doesn't have to go overseas. It's in your living room, in your bedroom, in the car as you go to work. It moves us from the theoretical to the actual in the spiritual realm. People's lives are changed because God answers prayer. God answers prayer. And prayer is the hinge on which everything works. So my question for you as we close is this. What will you risk? Will you join me in prayer? Will you join me in prayer? Not only for my friend, but will you ask God to help you see as Jesus sees people? Will you ask for gospel compassion as Jesus exhibited this in this text today? Will you engage in prayer for those around you Will you be one sent out into the world, into the harvest? Or will you be like the old Heath? Take the book, throw it in the bag, and forget about it. Will you say, in effect, eh, send them, not me? Let's pray. The band will come up as we pray. God, we confess that in and of ourselves we are wholly inadequate But we thank you that through your gospel, through your son displaying compassion to us, that we actually have life, that we actually can engage in this thing called prayer, that we we have a relationship with you, and that that you love us. Lord, I ask that you give us um, strength to actually see as you see, eyes to see. Lord, I ask that you give us compassion, that you would break us of our narcissistic individualism. Lord, I pray and I ask for forgiveness when there's times every single day when we fail to measure up and I rely wholly on your gospel that says, you're forgiven, my son. So Lord, I pray that as a church, as reality engages with its neighbors around here, that this church will be known as a people who prays to you. And this I pray.
Amen.